And we're rolling. All right. So I, I found myself in a little bit of a mood today. So in the spirit of Juneteenth coming up, freedom and all, mm-hmm. all, all of those sorts of things, I was thinking about Nina Simone's definition of freedom. Do you remember what her definition of freedom was? No fear. Mm-hmm. This is no fear. Let, let, I, want, I want to get your thoughts on this. If I had my way, I'd have been a killer. Okay? <laughs> yeah. That's true. Eaten. I would have had guns, and I would have gone to the South and gave them violence for violence, shotgun for shotgun, if I had my way. But my husband told me I didn't know anything about guns, and he refused to teach me. And the only thing I had was music, so I obeyed him. But if I had my way, darn, I wouldn't be sitting here today. She, she is, she's not playing. Well, what you think about that? What, is this the is this the Nina Simone that you know? No. Well, I'm the the Nina Simone that I thought I knew. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, but also when I first got into her music, I didn't know what you know her activism or politics or anything like that was like. Do you ever get to the point to where you feel like you just want to jump out like that? You know that feeling of so much rage pent up that if it was up to you, you would just. Sure. You know, do it yourself. Right. Um, I've got a really long fuse, and that's probably because all of the years that I spent with a really hot-headed temper and feeling bad about going off on people when they didn't necessarily deserve it. Sure. And so I have, as a response to that now, a really long fuse. But once the fuse gets to the end, you should just kind of duck and cover. <laughs> well, like like I told you earlier, if you if you ever need to just explode on mm-hmm. someone not in the good way. Right. Uh, hold on, where's my, Not in the good way. <laughs> you have a platform to do that on, right? Got it. All right, here we go. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. I'm getting better at that. Nailed it. I'm getting better. How are you feeling today? First take, so feeling good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, here here we are. Yeah, this was the first take. Uh, Hello, everyone. Welcome to Opus 103. Thank you so much for being here. Your continued support is is highly appreciated. Happy early Juneteenth. uh, When this comes out, we're a few days away from Juneteenth, so happy Juneteenth. I actually have a Juneteenth-themed triloquy that I'm getting into today. Do you? I've, I've had some you know, uh, very specific feelings of this Juneteenth season. But anyway, we'll uh, we'll get into that. Uh, before we hop on into Movement One, uh, a few announcements. First of all, a huge shout-out and congratulations. Where's my applause? To Tanya Leon for winning the Pulitzer Prize. I mean, a, a, a big deal, woman of color. Mm-hmm. Where we're really seeing a lot of diversity there. So uh, a huge congratulations to composer Tanya Leon. I want to send in a shout-out to uh, Dr. Albert Lee. We're connected through the Black Opera Alliance. Uh, Dr. Albert Lee recently became the first director of equity, belonging, and student life at the Yale School of Music. I mm. mean, we're not talking about a, a nowhere school. This is Yale that's paying right. attention to these things and has created a position to uh, make sure that those 
those sorts of things are being uh, paid attention to. Um, I want to send a shout out to Anwar Nazir, who recently became the executive director of the Louisiana Philharmonic, a historic and historic move for an orchestra to seat a black executive director. Mm. And then in a place like uh, New Orleans, that's where the Louisiana Philharmonic is based. So, you know, all kind of incredible stuff uh, happening down there. So huge shout out to them. I want to uh, send a huge thank you to Make Music NOLA, speaking of uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, for your continued support of Triloquy. And I also want to send a huge shout out and a thank you to everyone over at WKAR for your continued support. Any announcements or uh, any shout outs from you this week, Scott? Not this week. You're lucky. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get into movement one. All right, Scott. Um, we're going to start by talking a little bit about Tom Hanks. Now, I'm, I'm going to explain to you how I, I got here. Um, today's guest, we have a very, very special guest. I had the honor of sitting down with Rachel Barton Pine. Yeah, She's man. a woman who has been on the ground level, really doing the work of promoting and uh, raising awareness for black composers specifically. Um, about 22 years now. Yeah, a, a long time. Uh, when we talk about allyship and accompliceship, I think Rachel Barton Pine is a great example. I'll, I'll get into a little bit more of that uh, a, a little later in this opus, but I just want to bring that up because that was sort of my bridge toward this article. I thought it was a, a sort of interesting headline. It says, Tom, hey, this is an opinion piece uh, on from a national public radio NPR. It says, Tom Hanks is n- a non-racist. It's time for him to be an anti-racist. I had you uh, take a look at this article, and one of the first things, well, actually, I'll, I'll read a, a little bit of the opening here. It says, first, I must note how much I love Tom Hanks as a performer, Hollywood citizen, and all-around stand-up guy. Of course, he's a consummate actor with two Oscars and starring roles in landmark films such as Philadelphia and Forrest Gump. He's been an outspoken advocate for gay rights and environmentalism. He even helped us get through the pandemic, setting a graceful, confident example when he and his wife Rita were among the first celebrities publicly revealed to have COVID-19. So when I saw he recently had written a guest essay for the New York Times calling for more widespread teaching about the Tulsa race massacre, when white mobs in Oklahoma burned a prosperous black neighborhood to the ground in 1921, killing between 100 and 300 people, I was sincerely heartened. Now, I thought we'll see him examine how his work, so often focused on the achievements of virtuous white male Americans, may have made it tougher for Taylor about atrocities such as Tulsa to find similar space. Mm -hmm. But he didn't fully go there. And here's what he did say. I'll let you read uh, the rest of that. I'll have that linked in the description. But one of the things that instantly came to my mind, and I think it's actually named in this article, Scott, is the good person, the good ally, the, the maybe even the good accomplice, feeling like they're doing so much and being pushed and challenged to do even more. What what do you uh what, what what are your feelings about feeling like you're doing so much and then, you know, someone brings something up and it doesn't even seem like it's enough. That happens sometimes and uh it's very disappointing when it does happen because I want to turn around and go, "Have you not looked <laughs> at what I have done?" You want to put Is that wrong? Well, <laughs> that's what you're like. <laughs> come on now. I mean, what I'm ba- basically what I'm saying is there is some work here that that, yeah. that, that I've done. There's yeah. 24 hours in a day, okay. So cut me a little bit of slack, but um, 
really more to the point what the article spoke to me was um, while he was making movies that showed white pe- uh, a white male doing the right thing, mm-hmm. it was not acknowledging the black issues that were happening in real time right. at the same time. Right. So I get that. Um, as far as what the answer is to it, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a, a fair critique, and I, I will say that I, I try to recognize, you know, allyship and accompliceship everywhere I can. But I, you know, as, as they say, the devil is in the details, mm-hmm. right? My mm-hmm. teacher used to say, "There's always a little dust in the corners," and I don't think it's a horrible thing to pull that sort of critique from, you know, a statement made by Tom Hakes. Yes, we understand what you believe and what you say, but it's time to go back into, I don't know, saving Private Ryan and address why there are no black people here. And maybe that was historically accurate for there to be no black folks storming uh, Normandy. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about why. You know, that that is a part of the history being erased. I, I feel like you know, there's uh, there's a lot of work to be done there, and we can't pretend that continuing to you know be complicit in you know something not being highlighted, we we have to acknowledge that for what it is. It's it's continued racism, it's continued white supremacy over you know his history as portrayed you know through the arts, through all the movies. So I know that you read this opinion piece. Did you read the piece that Tom wrote? Did you read his actual? Oh, I didn't. Did you piece? There, that, there are quotes that they're quotes from it. right that they're responding to. And I'm just curious about what you thought about the things that he did lay out. And let's actually uh, take a look at that because uh, that piece is quoted here. Uh, Some of the, uh, this is an excerpt from what uh, Tom Hanks wrote. It says, history was mostly written by white people about white people like me, while the history of black people, including the horrors of Tulsa, was too often left out until relatively recently, the entertainment industry, which helped shape what is history and what is forgotten, did the same. That includes projects of mine. Today, I think uh, historically based fiction entertainment must portray the burden of racism in our nation for the sake of the art form's claims. Um, (laughs) Help me. (laughs) Verisimilitude. <laughs> I knew that for I knew that word was coming up for reading this earlier, and I did not know the words. I had to look it up and everything. I, I, right. I need practice saying that when I can read y'all. Anyway, <laughs> what Tom Hanks is uh, is saying, and I think what the the writer of this opinion piece was saying, you know, he read those words and he was like, "Oh, great, yeah." Tom Hanks is about to go into it, but he didn't actually. That he stopped go short. Into it. That he yeah. stopped short from it. Um, Tom is probably one of the most most powerful producers in the game. So he could certainly make something happen to start correcting these things, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. What if he threw some cash behind some of the stories that were cropped out, like we're talking about here? Is that enough? Um, does does he need to give the money to somebody else and, and go completely hands-off? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... He's got the cash, right? So it's it's well, not an, it's not an issue of resources, right? Like I said, there's always a little dust in the corner. One of the big things that I took from this piece that I feel like we can all apply to ourselves, I certainly apply to myself, is getting away from the notion of just being objectively good people with no room to grow. Because how could we possibly be racist? How could we po- possibly be sexist or transphobic or whatever? You know, we we need to get away right. from that image of you know anyone. Our 
our, you know, certainly ourselves just being this perfectly formed, completely realized person who is mm-hmm. completely woke, as they say, woke tea. Right. He's one of the uh, the Hollywood trinity, you know, along with uh, Jeff Goldblum and Keanu Reeves. Mm-hmm. They're supposedly the untouchables, yeah. right? Ke- Keanu Reeves is invited to the cookout. Is he? <laughs> is that, Tom? They, they, they've been saying that all over the internet, so. Okay. Where's my... I said what I said. <laughs> anyway, um, so you're, you're saying that, you know, the impact would be there. I think. You know, as, as far as all that. You know, I, I, I think so, too. So uh, shout out to Tom Hanks, uh, the writer of this. Shout out to um, Eric Deegans. And shout out to the word verisimilitude. Verisimilitude. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to name this opus verisimilitude. <laughs> <laughs> all right. If I write it down and read it a hundred times, next time I come to that word, I won't stumble. Okay. <laughs> um, one movie that I think did an okay job of... Uh, highlighting, you know, blackness and acknowledging blackness that Tom Hanks was involved in was Forrest Gump. Mm-hmm. Well, would you would would you say so? Uh, what what am I saying about Tom, uh, uh, the movie Forrest Gump as one that per- portrays black folks that puts black folks in the story of the '60s and '70s and '80s with you Bubba, know? sure. With Bubba, I mean that that scene. I can't watch it. Yeah, I what? can't think about it without getting emotional. Yeah, but for, remember, Forrest Gump was all in the Black uh, Panther meeting. Right. I'm sorry to <laughs> sorry to ruin your Black Panther party. Um. Anyway, I thought that of, would be me apologizing. Be you. <laughs> sorry, guys. Sorry to interrupt you your think, Black Panther do you party. Think the character Forrest Gump could be considered an anti-racist. He certainly was not a race. He, he wasn't a racist. Okay. You, we can, we can tell that through the story. Did he act anti-racistly? Did he push back against it in some way? I, I think that he was just a person. I think that he yes. just treated everybody like, like a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't bright enough to see around him. Maybe he wasn't bright enough to see the racism. Yeah. I don't know. I think given all that money to Bubba's mama, that was something. was something. I mean, because again, and then she you go got from, to have shrimp served to her, right? Because she was serving, and then at the end, so that's a flip of a s- systemic thing, right? Right. Well, right. Anyway, shout out to they're gonna. I, I'm waiting on the day where they call that movie problematic, as far as uh, portraying someone with a a learning uh, uh, disability or you know whatever condition Forrest mm. Gump had. You know, great. I mean, but but would that not be fair? You don't think you don't think that's fair to. You know, to to call that out or to acknowledge that, maybe not cancel the movie, but is is that not a fair critique? I I don't know, because I think that it's talking about how, you know, the character is simple minded, Mm -hmm. but he's full of love. He's full of doing the right thing. He's full of treating people the same. He's not a smart man, but he knows what love is. There you go. And I need to have that loaded up in the board. (laughs) And I saw that movie at a very poignant time in my life. You know, it was maybe a few months earlier that my own mother had passed. Mm. So when when that happened, I I was just full on in the theater a wreck. And and then when he went back to talk to Jenny too, you know yeah. that was that just gutted me. It's really move. You know, we talk about sometimes even in music, less is more, mm-hmm. or you know, it's something how they don't show his mom dying. It's just Forrest Gump acknowledging that you know, sure, I, I don't want to, and I don't want to go there. Okay, I'm, I'm let's just, not do it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, shout out, shout out to Tom Hanks. One of the this is black. We're still in Black Music Month, so I went through the uh, soundtrack of Forrest Gump, looking for the black music to uh, put in here as a transition, and I decided to go with the tune from Gladys Knight 
and the Pips. It's called I've Got to Use My Imagination. Do you do you happen to know that one? You I were, don't. You were around, you know. I was. <laughs> Maybe you're just a little, little kid. Okay, well, hit it. <laughs> anyway, here's, the, here's a little bit of I've Got to Use My Imagination as performed by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Was it again about this track that had you going and had you in your feels today? Uh, keeping on the keeping on, keeping on the keeping on. I mean, I, honestly, I just looked at the the track list from uh, the soundtrack to Forrest Gump and saw that on there. But oh, okay. it's, it's a it's a tune we all know, and it's a good it's a good message. Ugh, goodness gracious, the keeping on keeping on of it all. Sometimes. Well, um, you know how a few opuses ago I was talking about the racial reckoning that the orchestral world is seeing here in the States mm-hmm. is now being felt elsewhere, like over in England. It's coming for you. Here comes the story from Classic FM. came out on the 11th. The Barbican staff claims World Leading Arts Center is institutionally racist. Is this news, but go on. Well, well first of all, what, what accidental? Are we give oh well, I didn't I didn't give my sharp earlier the 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 op ed right. concerning Tom Hanks I think it's a sharp okay. okay so what so what about this one well I wanted to give it both a flat and a natural so it's a flat roll there we go because it's a it's a natural because duh and and I'm giving it a flat because you're just now seeing this. Okay, so the story is Europe's largest performing arts center is at the center of a racism row. So the Barbican in London is a performance venue. It's uh, involved. It's one of the venues that they use for the BBC proms. Mm-hmm. You know, just a huge. It's a huge um, arts center. And the Barbican in London has launched an independent review after being accused by its own staff of, quote, institutional racism. Oh, what a yep. surprise. So uh, several black and ethnically diverse staff say that they have been assumed to be cleaners oh, because of the, so? the color of their skin. <laughs> One guy said, a uh, black man said, somebody came up and said, hey, do you have some weed? Oh, completely, can completely just shocking there. Right. So, uh, and you say shocking because, because that they was were in, shocked. That right? was in, that <laughs> was in the Barbican's response. Of course they were. It says we are. They they are shocked, shocked. I tell you. Let me find that exact quote here. Uh, the Barbican statement added, although we have not received any formal complaints, all staff will be able to contribute to the independent review so that their experiences can be heard and those affected can get the support they need. We, we, we want everyone's voice to be listened to and respected. Yes, they were shocked to find out that this was happening right there uh, in, in their own venue, the Barbican. Shocked and saddened to hear the allegations. We have always strived to be an inclusive, welcoming, and opening organization. Where's my Where's my soundboard? Hold on. I'll just give it another one. Okay. I'm 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 just about ready to give up. 
especially when it comes to the large, very large historic institutions. Because when you're when you're telling me when they're put, putting stuff out there saying, "Oh, we had no idea. This is shocking. We mm-hmm. hadn't we hadn't heard anything about this." Okay, so you're telling me that. Uh, well, first of all, you're either lying and and not acknowledging the complaints that you've gotten, or um, you're telling me that no one has stepped up to complain, of which I also have an issue. I, I, I can't change the Barbican, okay? I, ca- I can't change all these big institutions. The folks who work there, y'all are the ones that have to deal with this bullshit all day. Yeah. So why, why are you not speaking up? And I don't... I don't you know, I, I don't mean to victim blame or anything, but there is there is some responsibility on the part of the folks who work there. If it is a problem, it is if it is a racist system for you, why why are you just letting it happen to you? I'm sorry, I, my my patience is is so thin when it comes because these these stories of the racist classical music workspaces it's so boring at this point because we've heard the story over and over again. When are the folks on the inside going to start shaking things up so that it changes? My question is how many more of these pieces are going to have to be compiled and tallied while we have other pieces that come out and say, nothing's wrong, right. nothing's racist here, everybody's okay. And the thing okay. is, these organizations are so used to being um, you know, this objectively good arts organization, they think that, that these vapid statements mean something mm-hmm. to somebody. Mm-hmm. They think that if I am read, if I don't know anything... Excuse me. I don't know anything about the Barbican, which I don't hardly. And I'm reading this thing, and they say that they were shocked and hadn't heard anything. I feel like they genuinely think that I'm supposed to believe that, or black folks are, are supposed to believe that. Anyone who does this work is supposed to buy that. Mm-hmm. That's nonsense, and it's I'm, it's just tired. So I mean, but but back to my original point again, not to blame the folks who work there, but what do you think about the idea of folks who work in these systems having the responsibility to do? something about it, especially if it's impacting you negatively, or you see it impacting somebody negatively. What do I think about the power of the people yeah. of the people in charge, the power that they have? No, the responsibility of the people on the ground. The secretary who is uh who's you know they're they're calling her names the middle management person who uh somebody wants to fill as afro all of these people who are alleging all of these things do you not think they have any responsibility to take care of themselves and take care of their community in that workplace i mean especially if they're saying that they hadn't heard about any of this i do but um i also understand that when you are dealing with a behemoth organization or you know venue like the barbican is and the sheer reputation that it has behind it, it does, I could see where somebody would not have the courage to step forward, especially if they felt like they were on their own. Yeah. And another thing that the article points out is that through this independent study or this investigation, this independent investigation that they're having, the, some of the people who had grievances were allowed to air them mm-hmm. in front of management. Right, right. So my question is, how many people are comfortable, especially if they feel like maybe their opinion is in the minority, going in front of the people that that are oppressing them and saying, here's what I think? Well, you know, I've always been comfortable with that sort of thing. My volume is down. <laughs> There we go. Yeah, hit it again. I've 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 never been afraid 
to talk to somebody and to let them know that I'm a human being and you're not going to disrespect me. I don't care what level of, of management you're on. I understand. We always have to acknowledge uh, the world of capitalism and, and the risks that, you know, are they, that you can't take. But, but where does it end? So is that the end of the story? We just say nothing and let it all go on because we have to keep well, our no, job? Well, they've, no, they've commented that they, are, that they are committed to achieving necessary change. In, in the article. But Garrett, never mind that. My, sure. my more important question is, what, do you, what would you say to the person who has a grievance and doesn't have the courage, hasn't found their voice yet? How, what, what do you say to that person? Yeah, I don't want to speak. I'm, I'm, I'm in a tight mood read, reading about these things. So I don't, I don't mean to speak out of emotion, but in this moment, I feel like what I would say to that person is, well, what do you, well, what is your alternative to continue to, to deal with this racist nonsense at your workplace? Is, is that what feels better to you? That feels like the, the right decision to make. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it feels weird to, to point it that way, but you know, the, All, these... I just want, I just, I just want to acknowledge that not everybody is at that level yeah, and not everybody has that level of courage yet. My oh. thing is not being at that level does not absolve a person of the harms of, of those racist structures. Okay. So you don't have a choice. No, I, I feel that. like we don't, we don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. And especially to all of these so-called allies, if you see something that is, that is going on or you understand something that's going on, it is your responsibility to do that as well. All of these corporate um, trainings that uh, we do the for, DEI. for uh, not DEI, but like uh sexual assault in the workplace uh -huh. the whole thing where you you know you are required to report and all of that stuff that's the sort of language we start to need to start getting into when it comes to anti-racism in these art spaces we it can't be enough it can't be acceptable to just you know stay in your lane or mind your own business or just put your nose down if you know this sort of stuff is going on those are folks going home stressed every day folks going home crying i mean the 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 trauma that we just allow to uh be sustained because we don't have the courage because we don't want to piss off the wrong person because we might get fired i don't right. know i i I acknowledge my privilege in, in the, the way that I execute my activism, but I'm sorry, we, we all have a role to play in this. And I would challenge everyone that works there to speak up. I better never see an article again with the Barbican alleging that they haven't heard anything. Okay. Because if that happens again, right. I'm, I'm wagging my finger at y'all. Y'all right. need to, y'all need to raise your voices and do something about it. Maybe get together. You know, mm, as mm, a, mm. rather as a group, and then you've got that support when when you go in to confront these issues. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what the answer is. Um, I, I wish you well. I, I wish feel, you good luck. I feel like I'm barking. I'm kind of. I need to cool down a little. Yeah, bit. but I, I don't feel like you're barking at me. You're just barking near me, so it's fine. <laughs> Who do you think is going to be first? The originators <laughs> of the racism, the OGs of colonization, or the United States? Well, I feel like we could definitely snatch victory from, uh, snatch defeat from the jaws of victory on that. <laughs> I almost got my metaphor backwards. I almost got it right, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, um, I, it, this, it, this will be interesting. This will be interesting to see who deals with it better sooner. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, 
as a musical transition here, you uh, you brought us toward Jimi Hendrix. Why, what, what is the, the Jimi Hendrix connection to the UK and UK culture? He lived there for a number of years, and he had some of his biggest successes in England, uh, much like Nina Simone. Yeah, uh, you know she yep. went. She went to Paris for better treatment, oh, for yeah. you know to to be free, and he found more freedom overseas than he did here. And some of his biggest successes were over there. It don't sound like it's much more better, but mm. based based on what you just read from the Barbican, though. You know that his apartment was right next door to the one that Handel lived in, like three hundred years prior, right? Oh, really? Yeah. I hope you went over there and pissing shit all over the floor. <laughs> it's a museum. Oh, it's the museum. Well, still. <laughs> <laughs> if Handel lived there, I'm tired today. I know. I'm tired. I know. Um, anyway, so Jimi Hendrix has a tune um, called Freedom, Freedom. You know, and we're, we're, we're in the, you know, in pre-Juneteenth here. So uh, to transition us into our last accidental, we're going to listen to a little bit of Jimi Hendrix Freedom. Let's see what he's talking about here. With some guitarist, left-handed, left right. hand, a left-handed guitarist. Well, he played a right-handed guitar upside down and strung. Oh, I didn't know that. A, yep, I didn't know that at all. Yep. When it comes to uh, the legacy of Jimi Hendrix and and the sort of colors that he put into the world uh, as a as a guitarist, um, you know, it's what what is your argument for that being classic at this point? Part of you know what's foundational to that sound, playing the guitar. You know this American music that he spread all all over the world. Sure. Well, I mean, it, it's a technique that's been copied, emulated, and studied by every rock and roll music entire guitar bar for bar. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, there's been pe- there's there's people that that are students of the Hendrix style. Yep. You know. Um, a kind of a, a lot like Stevie Ray Vaughan too. They had a lot of the same sort of sensibilities, shooting up and down the neck, and um, this. Um, uh, it was their own voice, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, even though Jimmy sang, the guitar was his voice. Yeah, and I think it's significant to uh, recognize Jimi Hendrix during Black Music Month because. I think I said this about uh, Lenny Kravitz maybe a while back, but just the fact that he was black was enough to mm-hmm. make me curious. Right, and I, and I think you know that's that's really significant. Do you think he, uh, you you think he still holds that you know Mount Rushmore level status in the in the guitar world? Um, in the guitar world, for yeah. sure. For to this sure. day, <laughs> to this day, he does. To this day, <laughs> yeah. Guitarists know who he is. I'm not. I'm. You know. But we're. This is something that we've talked about before, where the younger set is getting further and further away from some of this foundational music. Yeah. And I think it's important to keep Jimmy's name close to the top of the list. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, again, in inter- international. You know, star right. who, who who made an impact on in so many places. All right, one final accidental for the week, Scott. I'm I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it this. A problematic. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time. Listen, listen. Okay, here we go. I'm I'm, I'm just gonna get into it. This is a, an article titled "Resisting Racial Demagoguery." 
this has been traveling everywhere, all over my timeline. It it broke when I first saw it. It was late. It was like eleven thirty p.m. or something, and it, they were already rustling about it. Anyway, I'm going to read here a little bit. Composer Daniel Bernard Remain has made a good career leveraging his skin color. Now, I <laughs> immediately says, let's just stop. <laughs> I Im- I immediately went and found that meme of the guy throwing the papers up in the air. <laughs> you said just first on, sentence. The, on the first sentence. It goes on to say, uh, he writes pieces with titles like, I am a white person who blanks black people. He argues that orchestras should focus on black artists exclusively. He has solicited funding for a work written exclusively for BIPOC members of any orchestra. Let me uh, go down here because it, it's a long, problematic thing. Um, it, it, it talks about the, the Tulsa um, incident down there with the opera. Of course, this writer continues to weaponize uh, Denise Graves against the, the whole movement, uh, citing all of these uh, large audiences that uh, didn't, didn't have a, a problem at all. Um, there's one thing I'm, I need to uh, get to undi determined. Okay, yeah, uh, this is, uh, here we go, uh, another piece of this uh, article. Uh, He, uh, Remain, likely seemed a natural choice then to write a piece to commemorate the centennial of a race riot in Tulsa. That explosion of violence from May 31st, 1921 to June 1st, 1921 followed a still undetermined incident between a 19-year-old black male and a 17-year-old white female. Mm -hmm. So so, So do you see the way that this writer is in in the midst of uh, shitting on Daniel Bernard Remain is trying to twist history a little bit, saying maybe supposed maybe the white people were justified because this incident that broke it all off is still uh, undetermined. Right, the, and, the uh, violence, the violence in this writing, contesting the number of people that were killed, how many of them were black, whether or not there was an aerial assault, all of that. The company is still standing strong. That's one of the other things that's written in this article, talking about Tulsa Opera. We were talking uh, earlier this afternoon about institutions that no matter, you know, what happens, whatever firestorms they go through, they will survive. You know, they've 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 been here for this long. They're likely going to going to keep going. Is, is that, what do you think about that argument from this writer that, uh, you know, Daniel Bernard remains standing up for himself ultimately resulted in nothing because the, the opera company the is standing there strong and, and it not. always will be? What, what he, do you think about that? Um, I think that that idea being reality has uh, a stopwatch on it or, or a countdown on it. What do and you then, mean? Well, th- this is kind of what I'm talking about with the Barbican article. Mm-hmm. You know, so many of those come out and they're and they're tossed aside. And you said that this is getting all sorts of traction. Oh right? yeah, oh yeah. Okay, so how many more of the Barbican articles have to come out to equal one of Miss um, what's her name? McDonald. Miss McDonald. Miss McDonald. <laughs> Go ahead. What? What? That's her name. I know, but it's just the way you looked at me when you said it. Um. So you said that this one's getting all sorts of attention, yeah, right? Yeah. So why is it that all of these Barbican articles and ones like it stack up and don't make any impact? Yeah, one like this comes out, and everybody's apple cart is upset. Well, because I feel like in the arts, specifically in so-called classical music, we like to pretend that 
there is no opposing force mm-hmm. to our pushes for DEI. We we like to think of it as this abstract thing, but there are individuals, individuals like the author of this article, this so-called article, that are really standing in the way of all this. Let me, let me right. read a little bit of the end here. It says, Remain is trying to get in the last word, playing the victim to the end. I love Tulsa Opera, he told Vulture. The question is, does Tulsa Opera still love me? And if they're going to say that they can't say the words, goddamn America will, what does God bless America really mean for them? Tulsa Opera undoubtedly still does, quote, love remain, and he will be happy to commission, and they will be happy to commission him again. The significance of the episode, however, is that the company is still standing despite having refused to cave into racial hustle. Racial hustle. In a world of increased Recently, craving arts organizations that too is still worth commemorating. This is my thing, Scott. We cannot pretend that she did not say something with some truth there. I don't like pretending that. Oh, you know what? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not praising this writer at all, but I definitely think there is something to the fact that organization after organization has met some sort of firestorm, and at the end of the day, it was whatever. It, it got some attention for a few weeks, but they're still standing strong, and sure. they're fine. I, I think that is something very gruesome, gruesomely true. I, I think that's something that we have Agreed. to you know, just think about, just sit with, sit with that fact that these sorts of things ultimately are inconsequential to these organizations. Think about the number of prongs in this attack. Garrett, because I mean, even at one point, she basically seemed to say, and this piece, this piece by DBR in the end wasn't even really all that good. They, you know, so and they, and so, they always go there. So to, it's you know. trafficked on first, he was playing the race card, the music really isn't even any good. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because the Tulsa Opera is still there. Am I getting the gist of the article? I mean, that's that, that that's what that's what she says here. Yeah. DBR will be fine, and of course, as we've covered here on Triloquy, uh, the the composition "They Still Want to Kill Us" has gotten performances everywhere and all sorts of attention. You know, there was that CNN article, but yeah. it it is worth noting that these organizations are still around, and it seems like they'll. They'll be around. It ultimately does not matter if an arts organization is being racist. Well, I would like to point right now to a a tweet that I recently shared. And you know that on Twitter, I'm not that active. So Mm -hmm. it's got to be something for me to share it. But Jason Isbell is one of my favorite singer and songwriters. Uh, He used to be with the Drive-By Truckers. He's been bleeding (laughs) followers on Twitter recently because of his uh, more liberal views in a more conservative uh, Child. part of music, Child. right? And we, okay, and we so, love to pretend like classical is not that, but go right. on. But l- let's listen to, to the point that he makes here. So many people believe in the white American experience. It is the only American experience. So of course they think that USA is damn near perfect. It all checks out. But when you ignore somebody's suffering, you're ignoring their entire existence, completely erasing them from history. And I think that we're seeing some of that here with... Uh, DBR. He is composing based on his experience and his education and the things that he sees. And let's face it, a white organization went, no, we don't think that. Right. Right. So I I would encourage people who are in positions of power to think about that, to think beyond your own experience. Um, I, I, it's an exercise that I have to try to do every day, but it's possible you know, to, to think beyond your own experience when it 
when it comes to this work? My heart breaks, my heart bleeds, because again, this concert that happened anyway, you know, this concert that happened despite um, all, all of what was going on, will not be remembered in, you know, 10, right. 15, 20 years right. as something that was the center of, of a big problem. They'll say, look, 20 years ago, we were doing concerts about, you know, black things and commemorating the uh, the Greenwood Massacre. And, and, and this, this specific incident will be We'll just will just be washed away. It makes me angry. It makes me sad. It it really it really gets all of my emotions going. So th- that's why I've been trying to say the name DBR as much as possible. DBR is actually going to come on Triloquy um, here in a in a couple weeks. So oh, nice. we'll, we'll we'll break down a, a little bit more of this. But shout out to DBR um, when when the Triloquy article comes out by by this writer. I'll be ready. I can't wait. I, I can't wait for her to try me and for and for her to try us. Okay, that that is not a principle that you would hold back in front of in the office, huh? What you mean? Well, you said that you know you spend a lot of time in the principal's office and you don't have any trouble telling somebody when they've when they've stepped on you. No, so, abso- absolutely not. I mean, I'm getting the jiffy pop going now. <laughs> I mean, you've 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 been there. You've I, I don't want to go into it, but I remember one specific time when I was getting hot in front of some management, and you were there. Yeah, and and you were quiet. <laughs> you think that, Do you think that I'm going to interrupt? Do you think I'm going to interrupt you? Oh yeah, that's good. That that's is good. that is not my job. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I just sat there and go woo. But like, again, again, not to rehash, but like I was saying back in that Barbican article, if someone is being, if I feel like someone is being racist to me, if I feel like it is wrong, for example, for someone to ask me to remove a Black Lives Matter sign, if I feel like X, Y, and Z, I, I can I can fill out the, the thing all day. I feel like it is my responsibility to say something. We were talking about this, uh, the Black Opera Alliance had a, a town hall a couple days ago, and we were talking about this very thing. What use is being a person of color in these spaces if you aren't going to be a, co- a person of color in those spaces? I see what you're you saying. You know? Anyway, okay. uh, we, we could we could be here. We could be here all day with it. But um, especially with your new toy. Is this? Yeah. Is this the last <laughs> accidental? OK, yeah. So this is the last um, accidental. I'll have all of that stuff in the description uh, of this opus um, before we take the second ending, get into the second movement. I thought we would enjoy a piece of music by Daniel Bernard Remain. So this is a, a performance from uh, last uh, last summer, uh, uh, June 2020. Looks like it was posted of Daniel Bernard Remain's. Uh, string quartet number five is subtitled Rosa Parks. First of all, I want to shout out Jen Arnold, a member of the Triloquy family uh, from season one, I believe. Uh, She's involved in uh, this performance. As you'll hear, the audience is getting so into it that they begin to clap, and it's just a really lively experience. That's just the kind of uh, music DBR writes. So here's a little bit of his string quartet number five, subtitled Rosa Parks.
It's a vibe. Crowds it's feel a vibe. It. It's yep. a vibe. That's the thing. As as much as we complain and talk about uh, classical music institutions and how they ain't shit, listening to music, especially you know, string or orchestral chamber music, all of that stuff that actually speaks to something or says something, engages an audience, as we heard there. It, it lifts my spirits. The the music gives me hope. It's the people that piss me off. What did I what did Einstein say? I I I like your music. I don't like your musicians. So unlike your not. so unlike your music. <laughs> I know he didn't say that, but that's No, you know. it was Gandhi and Christ. He yeah, says I yeah. 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 Anyway. Oh it's, this is a time, Scott. I, I, I know am, you should I be. I am pressing through. You should be sitting did, in the back, dabbing your forehead. What did right Gladys now? say? Keep on keeping on. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I feel. Anyway, we're here in the uh, second movement, uh, taking the second ending, sort of giving a little more context around something that we had on repeat this past week. I was listening to a lot of J. Cole this past week, and What's actually, that? well, um, he has a tune uh, that came out uh, on a new album about a, a a month ago or so. It's called My Life, and I really love the, we were talking about sampling last week, right? Mm-hmm. I love that, you know, that song has a sample of a sample that was originally Aretha Franklin and, you know, the whole black music mm-hmm. month of it all, but... Um, a friend of mine, shout out to Dr. Darrell Akon, he put me on to another J. Cole performance that I had not uh, been aware of. So he has a song uh, titled Be Free. We're coming up again on Juneteenth. So the idea of freedom, being free, what is freedom? And um, and the, the, the verse that he spits in, in this song, especially on this uh, particular performance from the David Letterman show, really struck a chord with me. So I, I, will, I would like to uh, share a little bit of that here. This is uh, Be Free, J. Cole. Yeah. Forget this chain, because this ain't me. Though I'm eternally grateful to Jay-Z. We're so elated, we celebrated like Obama waited until his last day in office to tell the nation brothers is getting their reparations. Hey. A man could dream, can he? No disrespect in terms of change, I haven't seen any. Maybe he had good intentions, but was stifled by the system and was sad to learn he actually couldn't bring any. That's what I get for thinking. This world is fair. They let a That's what really haunts me, the idea that so many of these people, these people of color in these alleged positions of power can't actually do anything. You know, us having to pretend to be excited that Obama, you know, finally put forward the reparations that our people are owed, you know, and and how capitalism is just eating us up. J. Cole really did it there. A lot of really did it there. A lot of people hear that word and blanch at it. Um, What I don't think that everybody is exactly on the same page. What does reparations look like to you? To me, reparations looks like a fighting chance, a fighting chance at this so-called American dream. So let's get specific. I think uh, number one for reparations, student loan debt for American descendants of slaves, gone. Like that just that just needs to flat out go away. Okay, the financial systems, the the uh, the generational wealth that allows person A to, you know, borrow fifteen, twenty thousand dollars from their parents so that they can put a down payment on a home. You know, those sorts of things need to be created for us. I do think that there is a um, cash, a 
amount that needs to be uh, supplied to American descendants of slaves. Whatever number that they come up with needs to be a number that either allows us uh, individually and collectively to create and build our own or to go somewhere else. Because I'm going to tell you, as soon as the reparations check goes, I'm out of here. I'm going to another country because I'm done. I cannot. So many others had the means. We were talking about Nina Simone earlier. Of course, James Baldwin went over to France for a while. We've talked about Josephine Baker on this podcast, not to compare myself to any of those artistic greats and not to say that it would necessarily be France, but it would be somewhere else because for, for goodness sake, Scott, why? Why can why would should we continue to be invested in a system that can't help us? We've had we've had the black president. We have the black vice president. And look at us. We're still around here struggling. We're still around here talking about the same things, whether it's in the arts or X, Y and Z. So anyway, I'm, I'm not here to preach in, in the second movement. But this 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 tune by by J. Cole was really really getting to me. Let, let's, let's listen to just a, a, a little bit more, just to get a little bit more of this uh, flavor. Again, be free, J. Cole. The ball is leaving college early. I turn on the TV and don't see no brothers with degrees lately. Are we all alone? Fighting on our own. Please give me a chance. I don't want to dance. Something's got me down. I will stand my ground. Don't Don't just stand around. Don't just stand around. Don't just stand around. Don't just stand around. A lot of people just standing around. You can't deny that. I know. I'm. I'm. I'm sorry, everyone, if I'm sounding very angry in this opus. But sometimes the the emotions and the frustration are just there. Don't just stand around. You know. You can't deny, Scott, that there is a lot of that going on. More of that than no. I don't deny that. I'm. I don't. Anyway, shout out to Jacob. I'm just, I'm just curious about, I, I think that that word reparations needs to be more clearly defined so that everybody's on the same page when they start right. talking about it. Right. Um, one of these days, we're going to talk about the transgenerational consequences of racial discrimination for African-American health. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so maybe free health care would be a part of reparations. What do you think? Just, just sit with it. You don't have to answer now. Just sit with it. Like Dude. I said... The money to get us to build our own and sustain our own. That includes hospitals and things because there are black doctors. True, there are black true. pharmacists. There are folks who understand our unique needs or to give us the, the, the ticket out of here, the, the real freedom. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, we're in the second movement. We're supposed to be talking about nice stuff like music I, and I all know. that. Go, go, go ahead and get us back into some nice stuff. What kind of music you have for us today? Um, Wayne Shorter was your guest on what day? This was several opuses back, but shout out to Wayne, Wayne Shorter, Shorter for being yeah. Shout out, shout out to um, Cesar Chavetta for um, for connecting. That, what you know? an interview! So he was the main composer for Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers when he played with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also worked with Weather Report. He was with Miles Davis in the second great quintet. So I mean, he's been composing, yeah, some He'd real real deal Holyfield stuff yeah. uh, for a number of years, but. Um, let me ask you as a musician, when you get a f- piece of music for the first time, what do you do 
when you're when you're getting a, pre- a piece of music that you're going to play, what do you mm-hmm. do? Yeah, the first thing I do is I I flip through it and ju- like I'm reading w- with my eyes and flipping through it and seeing what's gonna trip me up. What 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 little passage, what little thing is looking technical, okay. and 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 then I go from there. So, do you rely on markings for that? Uh, what uh markings? So I will make markings. So if I if I'm looking at the thing and I'm like, oh, I'm definitely gonna miss that B natural, which I will. <laughs> I, <laughs> I go ahead and mark it right there, even before I play it. You know, because I because I know myself. <laughs> so uh, I've been listening to a, a lot of what I was always a fan of Weather Report, and I listened to some of the Art Blakey stuff that uh, Shorter composed. Mm-hmm. But there's a piece that he did for Imani Wins that had no markings of any kind on it. So it was left to the musicians to interpret how are they going to take it, you know, with uh, with uh, tempo and, um, uh, I, I want to say volume, you know, or sure, attack sure, or yeah. whatever. But Style, you know. Right, so in this way, it's up to the musicians to interpret the notes however they are. So it's it's a tone poem that could be different on every iteration or every ensemble that gets it mm-hmm. might interpret it differently. What would you what would you do with a piece of music that gave you no sort of dynamics, no sort of hint as to how the the composer meant for it to be played? I would say thank you. <laughs> we need a soundboard person. I would say thank you. Why would I say thank you? Because some of these composers, like let's get back into the uh, the the Western European canon. You have folks like Tchaikovsky who will write four P's or four F's mm-hmm. under a note. What does that really mean? To to play as soft as I possibly can, to play as loud as I possibly can. Right. You, and and we get so caught up, especially these damn conductors and all of these little notes and all of these little markings, instead of letting the uh, letting the musicians interpret the music. As they like, uh, I think it makes perfect sense for a person like Wayne Shorter to put that sort of thing out there in a piece of music, even for Win Quintet, because when you consider his free jazz, his improvisation, as as uh, as broadly as as he thinks, just as a person, allowing the musicians to sort of uh, interpret it, it seems like par for the course from Wayne Shorter. That on top of the fact that you know Wayne Shorter and Monica Ellis of uh, Imani Wins, the bassoonist and all those folks they know each other and they have their salons so sure he he also trusts the ensemble with his art do you think that a piece like that has staying power because if different ensembles play it and they're applying their own spin would you recognize it mm, that's a that, that's a good my my comeback to that is what if that were the norm what if we were listening to the musicians instead of you know our interpretation, our mm-hmm. knowledge of mm-hmm. this piece of music, and weighing that against the performance. I think there's a lot of that in so-called. I classical think the danger is across the board. Right, the danger is for it to turn into like an Eagles Live album. <laughs> okay, what is that now? Eagles just, Live. It's just that you know, whenever you listen to the live version of an Eagles tune, it's always twice as long as it needs to be. Oh, okay. And, okay. You know, it's okay. just you know, and I like the Beatles, but uh, the Beatles, the Eagles, but I don't want to listen to one song for four. 40 minutes. 
you know, <laughs> not one eagles tune uh, every uh every town has um a bar called the eagle so i know about that sort of thing oh do you <laughs> but yeah do, do, do you i'll don't, don't worry about it shout, shout out shout Thank out you. shout out to the gays who know what the eagle is in every city anyway um you want to listen to a little bit of this uh Terry i do i thought um getting up near the end would be a nice place to pick up on this just because you know they uh, imani has already built the tension they've gone through some different tempos mm-hmm. and all this and and i think that this is a nice summation That horn at the end, though. Yeah, shout out to Jeff Scott, who, you know, we talked about it last week, recently yeah. retired from uh, Imani Wynn. So shout out to Kevin for um, picking things up there. Again, le- legendary, legendary ensemble. And check out Terra Incognita by yeah. Wayne Shorter. And uh, that uh, I'll mention that that is on an album also titled Terra Incognita, okay. but with all sorts of uh, really incredible stuff. Well, uh, today's guest, uh, as I mentioned, is the incredible Rachel Barton Pine. So she has become really famous for uh, the way that she advocates for a black composer. She has the Rachel Barton Pine Foundation right. that is is dedicated uh, to, to, to that sort of thing. I have a beautiful poster on my wall. Uh, thanks to their work, I'll have information about how you can uh, uh, you know learn more about the Rachel Barton Pine Foundation and more about her. Scott, um, she tried to flip this interview on me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> is she going to have you on her podcast? I don't know if uh, Rachel Barton Pine has a podcast. She should start one and have you on it. Sure, sure. She, uh, <laughs> she She's busy. No, she's doing a lot. Um, one of the things that she was talking about, uh, we talked for about two hours. I can't, you know, put the whole conversation up there. But one of the things that she was talking about, you know, you talk uh, talking about interpretations and the uh, Terra Incognita things having no markings or anything. Well, when she is looking at this archival data, you know, these uh, manuscript scores and things, she talks about the responsibility of adding the appropriate marks or when even when it comes to the recordings, you hmm. know, really getting into, um, you know, being the reference. Most most of us, you know, when we're playing a new piece of music, we're relying on, you know, that that reference recording that's going to, you know, get us there. Sure. She talks about the importance of that. Um, Rachel Barton Pine uh, got started in this work. Uh, by uh, recording an, uh, an album, a CD of music by black composers. She also comp- uh, put together an album, she told me, of music, uh, violin music, lesser known violin music, I'll say, by Franz Liszt. Well, the black <laughs> composers album was the hit. So, <laughs> so uh, she's continued. Um, the Rachel Barton Pine Foundation has uncovered more than, uh, I think, 700 works by black composers, more than 400 composers themselves. Are you? Are 
real ally, a real accomplice. Are you trying to tell me the lesser known violin works that's of Franz Liszt? That's what you heard me did say. Did not hit. That, that's what you heard me say. <laughs> the lesser known <laughs> ones didn't do any good. Anyway, anyway, shout out to Rachel Barton Pine. Where, where I'm going to jump into the conversation, um, I basically ask her, you know, as someone who has been involved in this work for so long, over 20 years, you know, what's your reaction to this, you know, so called awakening all of these institutions are all of a sudden paying attention to black composers and other composers of color so mm-hmm. that, that that's where we get started here so we're going to transition uh with a recording from one of rachel barton pine's uh albums this is an album called blues dialogue the first track on there is called blues a tune by david baker i think she really digs in and it's my pleasure to hear this and my pleasure to share my conversation with her you know, we are really just kind of, you know, staying the course. And it's, mm-hmm. it, but it's brought, you know, a greater urgency, certainly, that, you know, if you look on our website, we in the about section, we've got a, a project's timeline, which I created because people were always like, you know, when are the cello books going to be out? When is the mm-hmm. string quartet directory going to be out? And, you know, unfortunately, you can't do it all simultaneously. You have to you know, say, okay, these are the things we're doing first, these are the things we're doing next. And sometimes things can jump the queue, if, you know, depending on volunteers. Our viola um, directories are just about to launch because we had an amazing oh, professor, wow. Juliet wow. White-Smith, um, and her team who um, did the work and got it done. And um, so we're so grateful for that. So, you know, and we certainly um, aspire to serve as a hub, not just to highlight anything that we've been able to put together, but also link to whatever other resources are out there. So, right. that, you know, people get as much info as they can. But yeah, so, you know, we'll, um, and it's, you know, it's, um, I mean, it's, you know, better late than never. And, you know, I'm not going to insult anybody for anything they didn't do up till now, you know, <laughs> right, like right. it's too short, but it's, you know, kind of cracks me up when I, you know, get an email. Oh my gosh, I've got a cello recital this weekend and I need to add a piece <laughs> by a black composer. What should I play? And I'm like, well, you know, wait about a year and we'll have that answer for you because right now we're working, you know, I can't drop everything for your emergency and you've, you know, spent the last 30 years ignoring this topic. Um, but right, right. No, I don't, I don't mean to sound, you know, snarky, but, um, and, you know, we try to help people as much as we can, you know, and answer all the emails and everything else. But, you know, you can't always turn everything around instantaneously. Right. Um, but right. yeah, we've, um, we have a lot more volunteers, which is lovely. We have so many collaborators from, you know, the American Recorder Society to our, our string quartet intern and, you know, just working on a lot of different fronts simultaneously. And, um, yeah, so I guess one thing that has shifted, and I don't know if it's um, completely, I think this was happening anyway. You know, it's just been expedited by this um, recent national conversation. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, starting to see, um, you know, this this shift in the industry as a whole. Um, and, you know, SphinxCon, of course, was a big part of that. So that was starting before George Floyd, but then, right. you know, kind of got that that impetus. Um, but, you know, we started being only about these pedagogical volumes, and that was our whole reason for existence and our only idea. And then Parenthood, of course, inspired mm-hmm. um, our coloring book and, um, you know, and then and, and the timeline poster of, 
of composers where we have 300 composers from the 1700s to the present. Um, but it was conversations with um, arts organizations and professional colleagues that made me realize that there were a whole other set of resources that were very needed. And so, you know, we now have our online directory um, of living composers, which, uh, which we launched with 60, which was more than any other existing resource online at the time. And it just, you know, absolutely mushroomed. And we now have more than 300. And I'm sure there are people out there that we still haven't found or haven't found oh, us, but, and we're always yeah. getting more names. But, you know, we, we link to every single composer's website and give their contact information. And you can sort by geographic region, gender, birth year, whatever you're looking for. Um, you know, we've got some amazing teenage composers, veteran composers, people from all over the planet. It's just amazing. And then we have our um, dead composer, excuse me, historic composers directory. <laughs> there <you go. laughs> um, and there's about 150 there. Um, and then, you know, we have just different things. And it's just always conversations that that inspire different resources. So um, talking to a friend who is um, African-American violinist, um, lovely, lovely player from the Decomposed String Quartet. And she was yep. getting her master's at DePaul and um, somehow I brought up something about the Eileen Southern book and she didn't know what I was talking about. I was like, wait a sec, have you never read the music of black Americans? And she's like, I've never heard of it. And I was like, what are they teaching you in school? Exactly. And, um, I was like, I mean, I strongly believe that every single American conservatory shouldn't award um, a music degree without um, everybody having read this Eileen Southern book. Like if you're going to read one book and like, I just don't even understand how you can be an American musician and not have read this book. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, just, you know, and just talking to her made me realize that people don't know kind of where to start. So we created a curate, curated list um, on our website, a bibliography of, you know, here are some of the most important titles in the field of black music research to kind of get yourself up and running and familiarized um, you know, and then we have a children's book list, which has just been the most beautiful thing to see all the different titles that people are, um, you know, turning me on to, to, to add to this list. Um, and we've specifically stayed to, I mean, it's so hard to define, you know, exact boxes, but we've specifically stayed to classical music. Not that we want to promote the idea that it's somehow superior to other musics, but because of all the kinds of music that exist, it's been one that has not been considered a black music for so long. Right. Um, and right. so in order to kind of lift that up, we're not including titles about great jazz musicians or anything else, but but focusing on classical. So it's books that are either about a particular composer or performer or books about classical music where the illustrations feature children of color or even in the case of this one cute little book with smiling violins, the author herself is African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's that's been really nice to just have that resource there that we can direct people to. We have a podcast page. I don't know if you've checked that out. Where oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> prominently featured. There's a, you know, a lot of other good stuff going on. And um, yeah, we've got, you know, as you can see in our and our, um, what, what do we call it? I think, I think of it as the to-do list, but the, yeah, the project's timeline, mm-hmm. um, lots more, lots more stuff to come. But, you know, our, our aspiration, our big picture aspiration is to um, have these directories of repertoire where you can say, okay, I want a work for piano trio um, that's going to be such and such a skill level for this um, teenage ensemble I'm coaching. I need it to be five minutes or less. I want it to be tonal. Okay, what exists and where can I find the music? 
Um, and that's the thing. There are existing books that, you know, were put together by, you know, some of my research predecessors, you know, that, you know, the shoulders on which we're standing and, you know, just amazing groundbreaking work. But a lot of them are lists of titles and that doesn't get you very far unless you're inclined to do, you know, and have the skill set and the time and the interest to do primary research to track yeah, down yeah. these pieces. So everything we put on online, we want to give you a link to, you know, a YouTube or a SoundCloud or a Spotify so you can hear what it sounds like. We want to show, um, give you a link to where you can get the music, um, indicate whether the music is in usable form. You know, is it in hard-to-read manuscript or is it printed? Um, yeah. You know, tell you what length it is, tell you what skill level it is. So there's, yeah, so much work to be done. Our one um, big dream is to have databases as opposed to sortable directories. I mean, the mm -hmm. sortable directories where you can click on fields and resort the table gets you f pretty far, but a real directory with like drop-down lists where you can select multiple fields and things like that would be right. really ideal, but that's either going to take a qualified volunteer programmer <laughs> or enough fundraising to pay one, and sure. we're not quite there yet because one of our big hurdles is that granting, or you know, it's like what we're doing is so unique. Um, nobody's mm -hmm. done it before. And it's the catch 22 of because nobody's done it, no granting organizations have written guidelines to cover it. And we are neither teaching children, nor are we presenting concerts. Mm -hmm. We're doing all these things that everybody who does those things needs. But, um, and we've even looked into like humanities grants because of all the text content of our books. And we don't quite fit into that niche either. So at the moment, we're just relying on, you know, about half my income plus generous <laughs> um, donations from the public. And That has um, to be validating to an extent, though, the, the fact that you're blazing a trail. You know, your, your foundation is actually blazing that trail for, for, for so many more people. Oh, absolutely. I've just got an incredible team. And, you know, it's been so gratifying to, you know, see the excitement and enthusiasm of everyone who's been collaborating with us on this project and to especially now be seeing the results of, you know, children, you know, groups of black children, groups of white and Asian children, you know, even adult professionals playing this oh, repertoire yeah. that we've been collecting to see college students starting to go to our, um, our repertoire directories and pick things out for their recitals. And, you know, it's, it's just, you know, what I'd been hoping for for all these years and um you know and it's only going to get more which is super super exciting yeah i wanted to uh touch back on that uh concept of focusing on the uh the western classical i think it's very important uh, as i mentioned before for folks to know names like ignatius sancho and you know samuel coleridge taylor all, all these folks what else in your opinion does it take to really hook that first generation musician. You know, it's great that they are playing this very classical music by this black composer from the 18th century. Is that enough to, to keep them engaged? Yeah, well, I mean, in a way, maybe I'm not the best person to answer this because, you know, I'm not African-American and, you know, that's not my culture. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that's a great question um, that maybe extends to any student from any background studying what we call classical music. And, you know, you, you hear about, you know, kids who do eight years of Suzuki and burnout and, you know, maybe you can mm -hmm. keep them hooked in with some fiddling or encourage them to improv. And I mean, this is a whole conversation in, you know, in education, right? Right. So, um, you know, the way I always think about it is that 
what we call classical music is so many different kinds of music, and it's kind of crazy. You know, I'm a big heavy metal fan, and you know, metal itself is a subgenre of <laughs> nice. rock, and metal has a million subgenres, of which my favorites are doom metal and thrash metal. And you know, even within that, you've got you know, old school thrash metal, and I mean, yeah. <laughs> it just gets narrower <laughs> right. and narrower. And on the radio dial, you've got you know, 80s pop and current R&B, and you've got just all these very narrow things, and then you've got classical and it's like yeah. excuse me we've got <laughs> and there's so much in and it, we've got know? romantic and we've got yeah. symphonic music and chamber music how is this one channel this should be like a hundred channels and just put all pop music on one channel yeah you know <laughs> so <laughs> <Exactly>. it's crazy <laughs> so i always feel like any there's going to be something there for everyone but probably not that many people are going to like all of it and i yeah. i have the same conversation when i'm trying to advocate for my fellow rock fans to come to the symphony and give it a chance you know, you might not be drawn to Baroque music, but you might really love a Mahler symphony. Or, yeah. you know, maybe you're not into symphonic music, but you're going to really love checking out some some just the intimacy and vibrancy of string quartets. Maybe you'll love contemporary music. Maybe you'll hate contemporary music. Um, and that's even stupid to put all of contemporary music in one word. You right, know, so there's right. so I feel like and that's the thing I always have to keep emphasizing when I talk about the music of black composers is that. The one thing that defines it is that you can't define it. Mm -hmm. There's music like the tracks you're playing today that are drawn from the blues and from spirituals. And, of course, you've got music derived from jazz and from hip-hop and, you know, classical music that, in, like classical music always does, whether it's Dvorak and Czech music or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, classical music incorporating traditional music styles or popular music styles into its art music language. But then you've got art music that kind of is none of that. And just, you know, Jose White's concerto sounds like it could have been a Wieniewski concerto, except right. it's his own, you know, personal spin. But it sounds like European music. You don't listen to that piece and know that he's Cuban. You don't know that he's black. Um, and, you know, and some I've even met black composers who didn't want to embrace, you know, what we traditionally think of as black music and sure. want their music to just be esoteric and classical and not put into that jazzy kind of box. And, um, you know, that that's what we think of when we think of black classical music. And they're like, that's not my music. I mm -hmm. just write, you know, this music. And, you know, so I and think they have that just, right. <laughs> absolutely. And then there are others who just embrace it absolutely wholeheartedly. And there's no right or wrong. I mean, every every composer has their own approach and their own voice. And yeah. the fact that there are so many diverse voices, actually, that was what I was so excited about with our, our violin volume one of the Music by Black Composers violin series, that... Yes, it's all black composers, but it's also the most diverse pedagogical vo um, volume for violin in existence. The yep. fact that there are women composers in the mix, the fact that there are four centuries all shuffled together, the fact that there's what we call art music, um, you know, not folk music, because that's, oh my God, when you look at these pedagogical materials for the school orchestra or private lessons, you know, a lot of them are from the earlier 20th century, and there's a colonialist vibe going on. Oh, yeah. Where if you do get anything that's not from Europe, it'll be like Filipino tune, and you're like, mm -hmm. cringe, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it's like giving them wrong impression that if you are going to go outside of Europe, you're going to get folk music right. unattributed. Um, so we have, you know, composed art music from Africa, from Europe, from South America, North America, from the Caribbean, we have in later volumes. We're going to have a couple of composers from Asia and Oceania. I mean, it's it's everywhere, and um, and yet the music itself has so many. And that's you know, I get this question all the time from 
you know, from well-meaning students and young professionals who will say, what should I be playing? Mm. And, you know, the answer is, of course, yes, you should do your part as a citizen, uh, you know, as, as a musician citizen to, you know, represent a variety of humanity on your programs, right. different races and ethnicities, different genders, different centuries for that matter. But it's not a question of should when it comes to music. And I give the example of, you know, if you're choosing which romantic sonata to put on your graduate recital, you're going to be like, oh man, I really want to play Brahms III because you love Brahms III. Or you might be, I really want to play Franck. I really want to play Greek C minor or Schumann A minor. Mm -hmm. And that's because you're familiar with them and you know that you love certain ones. One person might not be into doing the Franck and one person might. You're not going to go and say, you should play the front. Yeah, and yeah. you're only going to pick the music that you're passionate about. So the thing that you should do is you should familiarize yourself with this music that hasn't been in the air. You know, it's not what you hear your classmates playing on their recitals. It's not what you hear the professionals playing in their recitals. It's not what's on the radio for the most part, though that's luckily starting to change. You know, but it, this is not the music that you just know about because you know about it. Yeah. So you have to go out of your way to find out about it, you know, and I'm trying to be as helpful as I can, you know, myself with some of these, you know, links on our website to recordings and things like that. But there's a lot you can do just Googling around and asking and exploring. And then choose the pieces that you decide to perform for the same reason you choose any music that you decide to perform because you absolutely love it. And, you know, I, I can luckily point to myself as kind of a good organic example of that because sure. I was lucky enough to grow up in Chicago with the New Black Music Repertory Ensemble's concert series and Paul Freeman's Chicago Symphonietta and, you know, not realizing that I was in this unusually lucky little bubble where I actually knew that this stuff existed from a young age. And so I've always, you know, like the David Baker piece, you know, like just pieces that I think are awesome or the, you know, Sonata by Inketia or, mm -hmm. um, you know, Concertos by Joseph Bologna. I've been adding this stuff in all along, you know, it's like when I go to think about, okay, I'm going to be on the radio for half an hour in such and such a town, or I'm giving a soiree at a donor's house, or I'm planning a recital, or I'm choosing an encore after I play a concerto. Oh, you know what? I feel like playing um, Clover Shaler Perkinson's um, Louisiana Blues Strut tonight. I didn't choose that because it's by a black composer. I chose it because it's one of my favorite pieces, and I felt like playing it tonight. But it's only one of my favorite pieces because I played so much of this stuff that some of it became some of my favorite pieces that's just naturally in the mix. Yeah. And that's obviously the ultimate place where we want to get to as a whole in the whole entire music world is, you know, my daughter, who's nine, you know, she said to me, well, mom, why don't you publish a book that's, you know, all kinds of composers all mixed together? And I said, well, you know, hopefully, you know, in a generation, that will be exactly what all the books are. But in order yeah. to get to that point, we have to have the one that's just the black composers so that people learn about them. So the, I'm sure this is a conversation you've already had a million <laughs> other times on your podcast. Well, in many different ways. But one thing I did want to ask, though, is to the diversity of black music itself, what's been most effective for you as someone who advocates for this music as a performer to really dig into um, the musical vernacular that's closer to what people would consider black music? How do you learn how to play a really bluesy violin if that's not a part <laughs> of the curriculum in, in conservatory? Yeah, and it's interesting to, um, you know, to bring up a, a sticky issue, right? You, 
like sometimes I'm grateful that there's music that sounds European because sure. then it can show that black composers writing in a European vernacular are just as good as white composers writing in a European vernacular. You know, that they can hold their own at, you know, the white person's game, so to speak. Sure. But then, of course, <laughs> you know, lending these unique voices that are coming from, you know, George Taylor Perkinson being steeped in jazz and just yeah. how his music doesn't sound like maybe a white person's would have ever sounded like. And that fact that we have this richness to our repertoire because of this. Um, me, for me personally, um, I was very lucky to have some unusual circumstances growing up. Um, my church congregation, um, which was and is um, primarily white, uh, we were still a very progressive um, kind of, you know, we were one of the first in the country to become open and affirming. So we were having, you know, gay mm -hmm. weddings in the 80s and I erroneously believed that church was where gay people could go to find um, support, and, um, and you know, was, you are in a bubble, huh? So, <laughs> I was definitely in a bubble, <laughs> but um, but our choir master um, was uh, organist choir master, I should say. Um, he, you know, on Sunday morning, he would play these amazing toccatas and fugues and lead the choir in Bach oratorios and. But every Saturday night, he was actually the conductor, the band leader at the Pump Room, which was one of these old-time kind of sophisticated, you know, places where you would go to, you know, have very expensive dinner and drinks and hear mm -hmm. the jazz orchestra. And so he would play just this incredibly, you know, moving gospel piano stuff for some of the meditation moments. And he would, he brought in section leaders for the choir um, who were African-American. And they got the whole choir singing spirituals and not, you know, these kind of, you know, you, you see these videos of white choirs trying to sing spirituals and it's all like sanitized. <laughs> but they, they got our choir like doing it in a very real kind of way. You had and, an expert there. Uh, yeah. And our, um, the leader of our Elto section, um, she was the children's choir director. So she had all us little white kids singing spirituals. So I grew up singing spirituals with this um, hmm. amazing African-American soloist slash music teacher. And then um, at the same time, you know, my parents who had gone to University of Chicago in the 70s, um, you know, they were big blues fans. And my dad would play, you know, the old blues records that they had collected. And of course, you just got it in the air here in Chicago with Blues Fest and everything. And so, you know, classical was on in the car, in the home. You know, that, that was most of what I ever heard. <clears throat> until I got my first transistor radio, you know, when I was 10 under the Christmas tree and, you know, turned the dial and discovered heavy metal. But, um, <laughs> and the rest is that, history. It was classical <laughs> and, Chicago, and specifically Chicago blues that really, yeah. like, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Like, there's a, a certain sound. Oh, yeah. And oh, yeah. so that, I just grew up, like, knowing what that was. It didn't occur to me to play anything like that on my own instrument until I was, you know, into my early 20s. Um, and that's when I started playing metal and fiddle and, you know, all this, this different stuff. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> how come I never thought to do that till now? But that was, that's another whole conversation about yeah. music pedagogy. But, but yeah, so, so I didn't, now that being said, so I, I was lucky enough to kind of have this in my ear and in my spirit, mm -hmm. um, even though I didn't apply it to my instrument till later. Um, certainly though, you know, I always think it, it's incumbent upon us to, learn about the roots of whatever classical music we're playing. So Scottish fiddling was not something that I was naturally familiar with, ironically being white, but you know, that doesn't mean you know Celtic music. Sure. And so when I was um, 
preparing for a Scottish-themed recital one time and learning the Brooke Scottish fantasy and stuff, I sought out some specialist Scottish fiddlers and started learning how to inflect and how to do the timing and how to do the ornamentation. And yeah, it took me about 10 years to really absorb the language, but I I got going with that. So yeah, and there's, you know, I've I've hung out with klezmer violinists to try to get that vibe for when I'm playing works by Bloch. Um, sure. Yeah. You know, so, so for anyone who who wasn't as lucky as me to grow up with blues and spirituals, you know, all you got to do is seek out musicians who know how to do that stuff. And and you know, yeah. jazz. I've had you know some exposure to hanging out with Johnny Frigo in the old days. But um, I did go and have some co- some coachings with Orbert Davis for some of the works on my blues dialogues album that were much more, you know, into you know that that really high level jazz kind of language. And I wanted to make sure that. You know, I wasn't just missing something. You know, I, I mean, you can get, gain us a lot from listening and, and instinct, but you know, to go to somebody who's like, oh, you know, this this you really need to take time over here because that's yeah. this kind of a spot, and just yeah. So just proximity, being immersed, like it's like learning a language almost. Well, it is, and you've got to have dialect coaches, and that's you know, when I made my Capriccio Latino album, I um, I consulted with. A, um, Latin violin um, specialist from Venezuela who was like, okay, well, you know, here's how you make sure that, that this Panamanian rhythm is mm-hmm. vibing in the right way. And yeah, yeah, so going and seeking out um, coachings, experts, list, doing a lot of listening, getting advice on what to listen to. Um, I think that's, you know, what I most, what I learned as a homeschooler was not just whatever I studied, but also how to learn and being unafraid to go and, and ask and seek things out. And, yeah, absolutely. Um, but before yeah, so I, I think, ask you, oh, go ahead, go well, ahead. May I ask you a question, though? Because oh, I've been sure, dying sure. to ask this. <laughs> okay. Um, now you're talk- <laughs> because this is a really interesting conversation that obviously does come up with, you know, me being part of this, um, you know, part of this movement. Obviously, I've got, you know, a, a lot of collaborators who are black and, you know, it's it's certainly far from, you know, I mean, I, I might be one of the public facing people in the project, but it's a whole team effort. Oh, um, yeah, of course. But, but nonetheless, you know, there's there's a question of um, cultural appropriation, right? And whether certain people should play certain kinds of music. Classical, I always feel, is a little different. Like, And I always use the example of I'm not Russian, but I play Tchaikovsky. I'm not Finnish, but I play Sibelius. Mm-hmm. And that it's actually kind of the opposite in a way that all of us have the the joy and the responsibility to, to try to play all of the good music and to highlight everybody and that that's how we kind of share in our humanity and et cetera, et cetera. You know the drill. But um, I'm curious how you feel about, you know, white artists, you know, taking up slots in symphony seasons playing, you know, a Florence Price concerto or white artists playing blues-derived classical music. And is this a good thing? Because, you know, if a soloist is going to solo anyway, maybe they should play Florence Price instead of Tchaikovsky. Or is this a bad thing? Because maybe a black artist should be playing Florence Price, but then again, maybe it's the black artist who wants to play Tchaikovsky, and they don't want to be forced to play right. a, only a black composer just because they're black. I know there's such a conversation about this, but um, yeah, I, I, I appreciate that. You know, for me personally, um, playing something or highlighting something or someone because they are black is enough for me because I think that's a part of equity and that's a part of my equitable work. Um, you know, when I think about your work, and I'll, I'll say frankly here, there aren't a lot of white allies whose work I believe because of where we are, where the ecosystem is right now. I think your work is undeniable. I think the fact that there is so much literature, not only 
on its own that exists on its own projects is in, and in its own corners. I've always really appreciated the way that you've integrated black music into the projects that aren't necessarily um, black centered or diversity centered. So on your beautiful album of lullabies, for example, you know, the fact that you have the William Grant still the, the Betty Jackson King, you know, um, on your, um, uh, I listened to, uh, we're going to hear uh, nobody knows, uh, at the end of this conversation, but, you know, uh, that being a part of American virtuosa, really affirming that music as American as, as it is, you know, so I think there um, it's become easier for me and for people like me to identify the um, people who are performing for lack of a better word, the performative allyship versus the true accomplishment. I mean, I have the, I'll, I'll turn my uh, computer. I have the poster on my wall, you know, and I, ah, I look at it every poster. day, you know? <laughs> so you know, I, I love that poster. <laughs> people, people who know me and people who know my work know that I don't, you know, make a habit of seeking out, you know, white trophies of, of allyship to give. But I think if the work is there, it's undeniable. And, and in your case, the work is there and it is undeniable. One of the big reasons why, you know, I wanted to ask you about the um, contemporary implications and impact of your work following George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor and all those people, because it would be much easier to critique you as a white woman in these spaces if that work started then. But the work started over, you know, 20 years ago. And that's undeniable. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm so grateful because when people did start having these sudden awakenings and emergencies, um, yeah, there right. was a lot that I, you know, I was like, thank goodness I did start this, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And I have some resources for you if we were starting from scratch. You know, it would be another decade before I would be able to help people that need help right now. And so that was, you know, very gratifying. But, yeah, I don't want to just dwell on myself. I'm really asking for, you know, for younger people coming up um, or even established people who are, you know, starting to see the light. You know, what is your feeling about, you know, people getting into playing music that's very, classical music by black composers that's very black sounding? Yeah, um, yeah. And I mean, I always go back to Dvorak talking about how sure. you know, American music is black music and black music is American music. And sure. you know, thinking that all of us as Americans aren't experiencing American music if we don't experience black music. But I yeah, you know, I think. Um, I think so often we, um, you know, we've always approached that music as sort of the the showstopper or the the fun thing at the end of a recital and and that sort of thing. Um, you know, we say Dvorak's name all the time in this conversation. I always make a point to include the name Jeanette Thurber, you know, who you know thought up all of this stuff, the woman right. behind so, so much of that. But then also um, Henry Thacker Berlay, Harry Thacker Berlay, with whom Dvorak um, uh, what was in collaboration to really understand those uh, dialects, have you said, as you said. And I think for um, any white musician looking to approach this music, there has to be a level of respect and there has to be proximity to experts. When we study with our teachers, you know, they are experts in the, in the Western classical traditions. We have to seek out the blues singers and the jazz singers. You know, you talked about Chicago blues. I, I grew up in Memphis, which is a very yeah. bluesy city. You <laughs> 
you know, so I, I, I don't think there's really the excuse of, especially with the internet and all that stuff. I don't think there's any excuse of not being able to have the, um, if not the primary source, close to the primary source, you know, folks who are really fluent in those dialects. And I, I think it's very important to, uh, to to do that. And and you obviously have. I think it shows, you know, not only in the work, but just in even just in the, the oral aesthetics that you bring forward, listening to the music, I can hear, you know, that you must have, you know, listened to some blues or talk with some um, improvisers. And I, I think it's I think it's apparent. There. Oh, I got to jam with them. I've been super lucky. <laughs> I have I have one more uh, question for you, but before I ask it, um, how can people um, get the poster that I uh, just uh, gave a shout out to? You're wearing an incredible T-shirt. There's the coloring book, the um, the pedagogy book. Where, where can they uh, get their hands on all of this? Yeah, well, those are um, obviously our, our products, but yep. we've also got all kinds of free resources right there on um, on the website, including presentation materials. Um, you know, PowerPoint slides of different composers showing where they come from, a map, you know, on a map of the world with their visual image that you can put behind you if you're playing some of their music in schools, um, all kinds of different links to all kinds of different stuff. So that, yeah, musicbyblackcomposers.org is our website. Um, and actually, you know, you, you mentioned the word teachers, and I wanted to bring up something. I feel like the next frontier, so right now, you know, we're working so hard to get the music printed to, and published and linked to and, uh, you know, in usable form, available, um, you know, linked to recording so people know what it sounds like, where they can get the music, what the music is, etc. But I feel like the next step is how do you interpret the music, that there's not a legacy of interpretation. Yeah. And I was thinking of the fact that if you want to study the Tchaikovsky Concerto, you can go to YouTube and find hundreds of performances. You can go to Spotify and find dozens of commercial CDs by professional artists. You can study with any number of thousands of teachers who've learned it from their teacher, who's learned it from mm -hmm. their teacher, who's learned it from their teacher. Um, let's say Sarasate showpieces. We know them. Now there's a whole literature of Jose White showpieces, of character pieces by Clarence Cameron White. Um, um, Berlay mm -hmm. has these four amazing works for violin and piano. That, And it's like, okay, here's the music. But now... You know, not everybody is totally comfortable interpreting from scratch and the yeah. burden of that for every single work. And so I have this idea for, you know, maybe video series, maybe Zoom get-togethers, um, just, you know, trying to start a pyramid effect where if we can get enough young professionals and established teachers to get together and talk about, you know, how might you finger this? What tempo might you use? Um there are certainly, for any given piece, you know, probably a couple of people out there who have indeed performed it, maybe even recorded it. You know, some of the great pioneering black violinists um, like Kelly Hall Tompkins with mm -hmm. her recording of the David Baker Sonata. Um, you know, there's there's stuff out there, but it's it's so minimal. And, you know, to be able to have, you know, like we just know what a standard interpretation of standard pieces are. We know where yeah. the hard spots are. We know how to approach certain technical challenges and how one usually breaks it down. We just don't have this body of knowledge. I think that's the next step to truly, truly um, right the ship. And um, yeah, as soon as I take care of some of these other tasks on the, the to-do <laughs> list, I think that'll be the next frontier. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a very important uh, point to make. So um, in closing, again, back to your album, American Virtuosa, and uh, your recording of Nobody Knows the Trouble I Seen. You know, you dedicated this album to Maude Powell. She never got to see you know, a liberated music field. We're coming up on Juneteenth. I think about, you know, my family, my ancestors who never got to see it. My living grand, my living grandmother who worked on a, uh, a sharecropping farm, you know, so the, the real proximity there and just the fact that that musical and broader liberation is just something she's not going to get to see in her life. Do you think we will get to see it? Do, do you think we're, we're on our way. Do you think we're closer than not? Ooh, well, I would never want to be one to predict the future, but I also am always erring towards the side of optimism even when it's silly to do so. Mm-hmm. I just can't help it. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, one thing that we always have to keep in mind is, you know, classical music as a whole. Um, they say that the one consistency in classical music is people um, predicting its death. And that these quotes that you hear about, (laughs) classical music is dying. You can read that exact same quote from 60 years ago, and yet here we still are. Yeah. So, um, you know, doomsayers, that's not the way to go. On the other hand, you know, Leonard Bernstein was talking about we need more black members of the New York Phil. And Dvorak was talking about lift up black composers, and it didn't happen. Now we're talking about this stuff again. We're doing more about it. It certainly has a better chance than ever before. But... Um, okay, I have been booked. I won't name the series. I won't name the state. Um, you know, <laughs> but I've been booked <laughs> to play not just one, but a couple of recitals next season where the presenter is insisting that my program be standard repertoire that the audience already knows and loves. Now, I can do what I can. I can bring in an encore that didn't mm. get pre-approved. And in fact, that worked one time, um, a series Again, I won't say where, but they wanted an absolutely, it was like Beethoven and Brahms and whatever. And then I played a William Grant still movement for the encore. And unlike their predictions that the audience only wants what they already know, the audience went crazy for the encore. And then the presenter requested that the next time I returned to the series that I do more of that stuff. And I ended up doing um, um, the, the Beethoven Bridge Tower Sonata to highlight that and mm-hmm. alongside a, a Bologna Sonata and the entire William Grant still suite. And um, Sometimes progress is slow, and I think that by, um, I don't know, by protesting and turning down the recital date, I wouldn't have the opportunity to bring in that encore and to Mm -hmm. then try to do it. But it also feels wrong to me that I'm agreeing to, you know, to acquiesce to these um, classical gatekeepers who are insisting that I only continue to play the white European music and it's a hard thing. And, you know, and this, you know, and these instances just in my own personal career that I'm seeing right now tangibly are making me feel <laughs> frustrated and sure. maybe less optimistic. But then again, you know, those are certain incidents. There are other, other places that are saying, we need you to play a, a diverse program. You know, we insist upon it and the opposite, right? So, yeah, and hopefully, I mean, and we're a capitalist society. That's a whole other, that's a whole yeah. other conversation. <laughs> but, you know, there's that component of those E strings aren't cheap. World, I understand. Yeah. You know, <laughs> what's going to sell tickets, what's going to enable us to survive. Um, it's a whole thing. I think we need to, I think we need to see that. And, and I just keep going back to the music is great that, yeah, you should do the right thing by 
humanity. And, you know, we don't have as much of a sense of, of all of God's people if we don't hear from all of God's people. And there's all of these, these moral kind of conversations. But I'm also just like, if you throw that oh, completely out, I'm just like, this piece is so cool. I can't not play it. And that's, you know, as just a purely musical, um, you know, kind of mm-hmm. selfish position of being a musician and wanting to play all the best music. There is so much best music among the music by black composers. And if we don't play it, we're not playing all the best music. And that's it in a nutshell. And we just have to, I think as soon as people see it, they see it. And we just got to do everything we can to get more and more and more people to see it, whether that's the administrators, whether that's colleagues, whether that's the public, the audience members, the donors, so many different constituencies that we have to advocate to. But I think once they see it, they see it. And I think also it's a long, it's a long game. Right. I mean, I'm seeing, you know, my daughter's group violin class, which um, happens to not have any African-American students in it. There's um, Asian, a couple of um, Latinx, there's um, Indian kids, white kids, obviously. um, And they're playing some of these pieces from the Music by Black Composers curriculum as on a regular rotation, just peppered in with their other stuff. This is normalizing mm-hmm. this, you know, they're, when they grow up to be performers or audience members, they're not going to accept a sudden diminishing of their musical diet. If the, you know, and, and by the way, the, the teacher also, you know, gives them occasional pieces by Asian composers, occasional, you know, fiddly kinds of things, you know, not just the strict old fashioned classical music. So, so I think if we can really do what we can now with everything going on, but also with the next generation, so that there's, you know, kind of a sea change from the grassroots. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, and, and you can see this already with what Sphinx is doing on the, I mean, I'm much more focused on the repertoire front, but with what Sphinx is doing with the participation front of, of performers, you know, that it's just not normal anymore mm-hmm. um, to mm-hmm. not have, um, you know, a, a mix of people on stage. Um, you know, this is... I think, I, I mean, I hope to live a long life. My great aunt is 103 and played her violin almost till now. Um, I <laughs> hope that I'll be around for a while and I hope that I'll see it. You know, but if I don't, that's okay because we each do what we can and we try to leave the world a better place. And I, I do think that for all the bad things happening, I do think there's been um, improvement. And then, you know, there's, it's, and it's not a straight line, right? You know, oh, no. you gain yeah. human rights, and then human rights are challenged, and then you kind of make more progress, and then you are cut back. And it's, you know, right, right now we're talking about women's rights, and mm-hmm. we're talking about voting rights, for God's sake, and LGBTQ rights being challenged. And, I mean, the fight continues, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I have to be opti- If I wasn't optimistic, I couldn't carry on. And, you know, I think the world becomes what we envision it to be, right? So so our, our hope becomes reality if it is our hope to start with. Let me tell you, Scott, 
When I hear that tune, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And when I think about the lives of all of these black composers that Rachel Barton Pine has uh, has has put on the map for us, has, has put on our radar, I think about the fact that they never got to experience any of this and, and never got to feel good point. The, the, the widespread appreciation. It, it it really, you know, puts puts me in my feelings. Um, again, like I said, Rachel Barton Pine sort of flipped the, the interview a little bit and basically asked me about my opinion on, you know, white folks doing doing this kind of work. I wonder what would be, uh, you know, your reaction to the question of your being a white person doing this sort of work. You're not recording violin music, you know, you're um, co-hosting and producing a, a podcast, but I don't know. We were talking earlier about it's everybody's job, and and that's that's what I come to. I, I know the uh, performative stuff when I see it, I feel like I do. I know the real work when I see it as well. Mm-hmm. So you're asking about you my know, your, contribution your, in the your, work? You know, to the... To the person who wants to critique, and we've we've been here before, but I don't know, just to revisit the conversation a little bit, the person who wants to critique your presence in this type of work, because I'm sure Rachel Barton Pine has faced that plenty. Sure. You know, but she's and been in it for too long to, to deny her. As have I, but I keep coming back, not because I'm a glutton for punishment, but because I want to show that there are some allies out there that are doing, that are making the effort. And... Um, I feel like I can call out some of these things because I've made the mistake. Sure. You know, I, I feel like I can tell people, read it out loud. Yeah. Because I went out there and said something without reading it out loud. Yeah. I've done it. I've made the mistakes. And now I feel like I can call out people for doing it. Yeah, you, you, you've, you've earned your stripes. <laughs> a, a few of them, yeah. There, there's also the the issue of lasting impact. You know, this work, the, the work of the Rachel Barton Pond Foundation will, will last forever. Uh, well, one of the things we talked about um, off camera, uh, off camera, off mic, uh, was that there is a, a major distributor who's going to, you know, the next time they publish the so-called Kreutzer Sonata, it will be the Bridge Tower Sonata. So that's a, nice. a the next generation just normalizing the idea that this was a, a black inspired piece of music. That's that's accomplished ship. That's lasting impact. When. I see the American Quartet as the Negro Quartet. M- maybe that'll be, that'll be the day. They'd be going too far, though. Let's just say the Afro-American. <laughs> because Did, that's asking for it. But isn't that how you introduced it once, though? As the, uh, I, I think I was sitting there in the studio with you when you introduced it as the Negro Quartet. Yeah, but, but Scott, let's face it. There's some people who gonna run with that. There's some people who are going to misappropriate that some? word Negro. A lot of people. <laughs> So let's <laughs> let's stick with Afro American, please. Okay. <laughs> anyway, all right. Movement four. Lots of trills That's there, right? But trill. the triloquy. A I've, trill. I've been challenging myself. I've been trying to find a different example of some sort of so-called classical music trill to get us into the fourth movement. Do you happen? Do you happen to recognize that one? That's uh, Ravel, isn't it? Is it a joyous oh, island? Oh, Debussy. 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 Yeah. I knew it was French. Yeah, so <laughs> it was French. <laughs> uh, so, so shout out to all of the pianists. Look, we've already been talking for a while, so I'm going to try to keep this short. 
My Triloquy this week is about Juneteenth and Juneteenth content. So I kept going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth as to whether or not I was going to produce the thing that I had in mind. But at the end of the day, I decided not to because, you know, we think about Juneteenth as this day of celebration, which it is. But when I think about how far we have not come, it's hard for me to really get into the space of bearing, uh, laying out there, not some abstract idea of freedom or these stories of uh, previously enslaved black people. These are, these are folks, you know, that in, in a couple cases that I knew and in other cases, you know, are, are directly tied to my family and my family lineage, thanks to all of the work my mom has done. So I know there are a lot of people out there producing Juneteenth content and doing this and that. I'm going to watch it all. I don't have anything on my on my schedule for Juneteenth. I, I made sure to keep my schedule clear to at least be free of work that day if not of not free of everything else but mm -hmm. you know at the end of the day i just could not bring myself to produce something for an audience that i'm i'm not allowed to be in front of in the way i want to be you know what what you know, the, the question that i asked on uh, facebook you know probably a month ago was juneteenth content that is classically adjacent who is it for and for what purpose does it exist what are, what are your answers to, to those questions uh i don't know if it was last week or the week it must have been the week before we were talking about an artist oh it was dbr and you know and we were talking about the tulsa thing about how can you ask a black person to wade through all that pain to get to the performance for a group of white folks right right, right. And I had people write into me and say, well, they, yeah, I think that uh, do, working through something like that through art is one of the best ways to do it. And I'm like, but, re but in the black experience, though, this, th it's different, isn't it? It reminds me of those posts that we see every now and again. Someone will take a, a picture of the uh, person in the cap and gown that rode their bike to the graduation or whatever. It, it, it's like... There is some enjoyment of the struggle. I use that phrase all the time again, pimping out the pain. And this is not my saying that I don't think classically adjacent Juneteenth content should exist. I'm just saying for me, for Garrett McQueen, it hits a little close to home when it comes to bearing out, again, this, this very raw, real history in a space that will will not really allow us to be as we are. I often, you know, I'll I'll make it the photo uh, for this week. Scott, you're familiar, very familiar with this photo. Right now I'm looking at um an image uh that my mom has collected of some of our ancestors on a plantation, you know, after after they were uh freed or uh, you know, allegedly freed. I'm looking at the folks in this photo, you know, this woman whose name was America. She never knew anything other than being beat and worked and raped. You know, Vivian here, who uh, was forced to marry the foreman because, you know, what, what power did a black woman have back in those days? Certainly on a plantation, she never got to see any sort of progress or, or, or whatever. You know, Pearl, the little girl here, my great-grandmother who I knew, she died when I was about five, six years old. You know, one of the last things she got to see in this world was uh, the police beating Rodney King half to death and, uh, and, and getting off 
scot-free. Her daughter, my grandmother, who's uh, living, worked on a, a sharecropping plantation as a child. And she is alive to tell those stories, you know. Uh, and uh, she, her birthday is uh, next month. I, I, she was born in 42, 1942. So... whatever age that makes her, you know, uh, up there in the 80s. Anyway, my point is we're putting out all these things. We're having all these conversations. We're uh, we're reading these articles about these organizations who are shocked to hear about racism or whatever in their ranks. And yet nothing is happening. Have we been freed? I think about, you know, the the newly freed enslaved person on Juneteenth. What example did they have when it came to excellence, when it came to wealth, when it came to comfort, when it came to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, other than the folks that had enslaved them, that that had them, you know, oppressed? All, all of these things that I think about when I think about producing Juneteenth content, and I could not bring myself to do it this year. It, it was hitting close to home, and I felt like, I would be tap dancing, you know, and and not really telling my truth if I put these stories next to this piece of orchestral music by this black composer and and this thing. It it didn't it it didn't feel real to me this year. What, you might remember I asked you if you thought about doing one version for one audience and one for another. Like what if you produced one show that was for the activist and one that was education? Yeah. Again, who who is the audience and who is it for and and for what purpose does it exist? I mean, I know, that, that, that's I, what I keep no, getting back to. I, yeah, and I feel where you're coming from. And I guess that, you know, this is going to this isn't going to be popular, but there are people out there that need to hear the story that need to know that the story ha- that your story happened. Right. Uh, so I don't know what the right answer is, Garrett. And because- for these people who hear the stories, again, I feel like history and present day, this past year even, has shown us what good is that right. for? I, All of these I, people I standing you. by, as J. Cole said. I've been, I was on a little bit of a soapbox uh, earlier today on social media when it comes to firsts, okay? So uh, th- there was this article, um, I'll, I'll put it in the description, that was shouting out um, an orchestra uh, for, you know, for, for the sake of everything, I won't name any names here, uh, an all-black orchestra in a, um, in a very famous concert hall and, you know, just praising the, the, the fact that after all of these years, this is, this is fine. Finally happening. Well, again, in a similar way that I think about this Juneteenth content, who is that a victory for? Mm. Because who? What is that? What is that audience going to look like? What restrictions are being put on that black orchestra? I I wonder about you know programming and why it why it could not be, I'll say it, why it could not be an all-black program. I can't help but to think that there are restrictions on some of these concert halls and some of these spaces that, you know, put put the diversity or whatever in the room on their terms, you know, on the, the way they like to do it. I'd be goddamn if I put on a tux for anybody, you know, and I'm sure that's sort of sort of a thing that they require some some sort of dress. And I, I'm 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 just I'm just not going to do it. That is not what liberation looks like to me. And that is not what freedom looks like to me. I don't think we've made it there. I'm not saying that Juneteenth should be a day of mourning. I'm saying we need to celebrate 
the the little bit that we've gotten and continue to push and continue to think about how far we have to go because we are not a free people right now this, this is this is not freedom this is not liberation certainly not for the artists and and, and we have so much work to do um we, I, I put a, a little uh sound thing in the board that I think I played earlier to this day you know sure <laughs> how I, it's am, perennial am, yeah. am, am I am I still upset to this day <laughs> is that wrong <laughs> anyway we like to joke and make light of that little clip but it comes from a very um emotional scene um promoting uh, a, a boxing match uh years ago the person speaking there is Deontay Wilder and you know for the sake of this opus again coming up up on Juneteenth. I thought it would be really important to uh, to hear what he had to say here in context. So let's listen to this. Radio Raheem, oh listen, man, you, you said that your people have been fighting for 400 on, years. Man. Your people too. So I just want you to explain what you mean too. by that. You know what I'm talking about. Y'all all know what I'm talking about, man. Don't sit up here and try to bait and not know what I'm talking about. Y'all know what the fuck I talk about when I say these things. Your people too. Explain it. I, I not everybody knows what you're talking about. It. Radio Raheem, I don't have to explain what's understood, man. You know what I mean by that. You know what I said by that. I ain't got to go further. And if nobody, if anybody don't understand that, then God be with them. Go look up the history. Go look up the history. Shit, ain't, don't everybody believe in Google? Go Google that shit. See what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about, man. You know what I dare you to sit up there and say, explain. You know what I'm talking about, man. His fine people. You know we've been fighting 400 and still fighting to this day. To this day. To this day. You just sit here. You, you hear the emotion in his voice? You hear how he's almost breaking down at the frustration of someone asking to explain what we mean by the continued struggle, by the fight. So I'm supposed to get in front of a microphone and put some music together so some white people can feel away about hearing a Juneteenth program. I don't give a goddamn about that. Shout out to everyone producing Juneteenth content. Shout out to everyone listening. Sorry about my mood this week. I know I've, I've sounded a little tight, a little upset. Again, these emotions go up and down. And around Juneteenth, when I think about the allegation of freedom, it just pisses me off that anybody thinks that we have made any 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 room, especially in the arts. We are fighting, and we have yet to we we have yet to get a semblance of freedom. And I think that's what I'm thinking about this Juneteenth. I invite everyone else to, uh, to, to think about that. Sorry to, sorry to sit here and, and, and yell next to you. I'm not yelling at <laughs> near you. Near me. Ye yelling near you. <laughs> you're all right. Are you, 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 you sure you're good? You sure I'm good. good. Everything's good. Everything's good? To this day! Everything's good to this day? <laughs> Bye, y'all. Thank you.